Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning on this Wednesday morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin. Coming up this morning, Virgin Media News political correspondent and columnist with me, Chronicle Gavin Riley. On the inevitability, it looks like at this stage of a hard border, or is it? We'll be asking Gavin that question very shortly. Noel Rock, Fianna Gael TD for Dublin North West on the hike in prices for GA fans going to matches with the National Leagues kicking off this weekend. Noel will give us his view on that. And a fascinating survey by Paul Murphy, a local journalist who covers Trim District Court, on the court cases this year. 136 recorded convictions last year alone in 2018 for no insurance. We'll be getting the insight on from Paul on all of that. And also he has done a survey survey on drink driving cases at Trim Court and trust me the results are absolutely fascinating. We're going to begin this morning though with a very shocking report from Temple Street Hospital which told us that over 800 children under the age of 16 who were treated last year at the National Children's Hospital or Temple Street Hospital were homeless. 651 in 2017, more than 800 in 2018. Joining me to discuss this now is Deputy Pat Casey, Fianna Fáil TD and Junior Spokesperson on Urban Renewal and Housing. Good morning to you, Deputy. Good morning, Cahill. How are you this morning? By any stretch of the imagination, Deputy, that is a shocking figure. There's no doubt about it, and I suppose the homeless crisis has been with us now since uh, since it was identified in 2014. It was coming down the road. The current government have failed to even manage to prevent any increase. We're continuing to see month-on-month increase in homelessness. They're not getting on top of it. And this is another report which just, you know, qualifies what we're saying, that the homeless crisis in Ireland... And the family and child homeless crisis is escalating and the government have singly handily failed to get on top of the crisis, Carl. I have, I have the Temple Street figures in front of me and, and between October and December, 260 children under the age of 16, 85% were treated for medical complaints, 23% were treated for trauma. And, and this, this disturbed me. This includes self-harming. Yeah, I suppose, you know, we, we, look, at the, we look at the headline figure and we run with that. But then when we deep further down into it, the effect that this is having on the quality of life for children, not just now, but the effects that that will have on them further in life, the fact that, you know, the conditions they're living in is adding to this. And I think that was the other frightening statistic coming out of this, that, that the type of accommodation they're, li- they're living in is adding to this problem, Carl, and it just needs to be addressed. The total figure from from the last November, we were told there were there were three thousand eight hundred and eleven homeless children in Ireland. Two thousand eight hundred and sixteen of them. Two thousand eight hundred and sixteen of them. 
in Dublin alone. And as you say, Deputy, many of them, so the children who reported to Temple Street and, 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 and looked for treatment, for example, were then going back to emergency accommodation in bedsits, in hotels, in, in whatever accommodation was available to them. Sometimes they don't have cooking facilities, they're, they're living overcrowded in rooms, etc. It's just a never-ending spiral, isn't it? Yeah, no, and, and no, it is. And, and, you know, as I said earlier, this just puts drives it further home to the government. Listen, you're not getting on top of the homeless crisis. This is further evidence. It's further evidence where we've seen a year-on-year increase of over 30%. The government claimed they're getting on top of it. The government are trying to normalise the housing and homeless and children's crisis. We cannot normalise it. This is not normal. This is not the way our country should be. This is not the way we should be treating the children of our country. And, and, and we need radical action to try and get on top of this. When, when you say when you say the government deputy, I mean your your party supports uh, whether they regard themselves as part of the government or not. They support the government, and so what pressure can you bring to to bear on this? And should you be doing more as the party that is keeping the government in government, so to speak? Yeah, well, I suppose first of all, we, we need stability in any country to deal with any crisis, and we've given that stability to the country to allow the government deal with the housing crisis. We've. We are, we've tried to influence every budget so far in relation to housing. Like this year, we increased the, the capital spend. We increased spending provision for homelessness. And we also demanded that the money be put aside for affordable homes for the people. And that's our influence on, on the budget. And, and we need to continue that. And we need to, you know, we need to bring the government to account, as we have done, and we can take the other example there recently that we focused in on where the credit unions have had ten billion to invest in housing, in social housing for five years now, and we are nowhere near to taking that money and investing it. Things like that could have been done and should have been done quicker, but a complete failure of the government to get that ten billion of money from the credit unions that they want to invest in social housing in Ireland. and they Your, 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 your own party's later. housing spokesperson, Dara O'Brien, has said that there is €170 million Euros available today to be invested and that has not been drawn down. It hasn't, from what yeah. I'm reading between the lines here, nobody's even looked for it. Yeah, and, and this is €10 billion that the credit unions have available and all we need is a special purpose vehicle. It's taken three years to get it through the central bank approval process and now it's sat on the government's lap for well over a year and no sign of no special purpose vehicle. And it's, again, it's time, I believe, that the government need to take responsibility and they need to start taking direct action and control of the housing crisis and not leaving it for the, the credit unions to come up with a special purpose vehicle. But can can, you, can you and your colleagues in Fianna Fáil not take direct action and threaten to withdraw from the supply and confidence agreement? Yes, I, that, that alone would, would and that, be direct action. I, yeah, no, that alone is, is probably the quick and the easy, the easy answer. You know, we threaten the government, but we equally have, and it was played on the introduction there, the country is in a very vulnerable position at the moment in relation to Brexit. So the last thing we need to do is bring instability in by us threatening to pull down the government because they are not delivering on housing. What we're trying to do, and this is what we're trying to continue to focus on, is height highlight the areas where the government are not delivering, where there is solutions, and try and get them to deliver that way, rather than bringing instability to our country, as well as what we're seeing happening in, in England. And we need to be very careful over the next few months until we know exactly where we're going in Brexit, that we don't cause 
further instability in our own country here. Point, point taken. I, I do see Deputy regularly on Twitter, um, Leo Varadkar, and, and we've had Damien English, the MeTD, on this programme, and he's involved in the Housing Ministry, as you know, as well. And, yeah. and they will both tell you that there, there are more houses going to come on stream this year, that the building process is underway, that there is going to be more social housing, more affordable housing. Are you seeing any signs to back that up? You know, there is signs that there's an increase in supply, but the supply is nowhere near where it needs to get to. And while the government are saying the supply of social housing is increasing, yes, it's increasing, but they're not meeting, meeting their targets. So therefore, we've a historical deficit accumulating, coming forward on top of it, not delivering on the current targets, which is adding to next year's problem. So fundamentally, we're not getting on top of the crisis. The supply isn't coming fast enough. The government are not availing of opportunities they have. The other one where they've completely failed is the repair and lease scheme to bring vacant properties back into use for homes. Which are visible in every town and every village in Ireland. Every town and village we go through, we're seeing vacant properties above shots, down to ground floor. They could be all homes tomorrow morning, and it's a win for everyone. It's a win for towns because it revitalised the towns. It's a win for the government because they don't need significant capital infrastructure to bring them back in. Like we have to invest in water storage and water to bring other in. In Towns and villages, vacant properties sitting there doesn't need any significant capital investment except repair of the house. A complete failure again of this government to try and bring vacant properties back into. Can I ask you finally Deputy, I'm I'm sure you were in the Mansion House for the 100th anniversary of the first meeting of the Dáil. Hello? Yes, sorry, I'm I'm just asking you uh, Deputy, were you you in the Mansion House for the 100th anniversary? I was indeed, it was a huge honour for me to represent. Yeah, and and, and you would have been reminded of that, that at the very first meeting political leaders in all parties acknowledged uh, the failure of the state to fulfil the Dáil's pledges. The first Dáil, the pledge was to protect children from poverty and Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said that the promise, the first duty of the Government of the Republic would be ensure that no child shall suffer hunger or cold from lack of food, clothing or shelter. We've let those children down. Yeah, we have. And, and it's, it's a blight on, on society, it's a blight on our country, and it's a blight on the House of Dioroctus that we're not getting on top of this. And I think it's time that the government take responsibility, take control of it, and start delivering solutions and stop depending on other people to find the solutions for them. Deputy Pat Casey, Fianna Fáil TD and Junior Spokesperson on Urban Renewal and Housing, we thank you for your time this morning. We're going to be talking Brexit after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And this is the Michael Reed Show. Welcome back and we thank you for listening this morning. 086-1800-658 as always our text line. 086-1800-658. Now, yesterday there was a shot across the bows of the Irish government no matter how they wanted to phrase it or colour it because we had a warning from the Polish uh, Foreign Minister first of all that he would impose a five-year limit on the backstop and that was soon followed by a warning from the EU that if the person involved was to be pushed on it he would have to say that a hard border was inevitable. That was the EU spokesperson Margarita Shinas. Joining us to discuss all this and a lot more is the Mead Chronicle columnist and political correspondent with Virgin Media News, Gavin Riley. Good morning to you Gavin. Good morning Carl, how are you? Shot across the bows in the last 24 hours? Uh, forced the government to be a little bit more frank and forthcoming than they usually would have been because uh, before 11 o'clock yesterday morning when we had this comment from the European Commission spokesman, um, the line about the border was, we're just not going there, we're not contemplating a hard border and it's up to Britain to decide what comes next. Uh, And then when we have the comments from the European Commission, whether you portray it as being just 
stating the obvious or whether you portrayed it as a bit of a misstep as far as Brussels is concerned. And certainly that's what the Irish government is trying to portray this as, as a slight misstep, not not quite a very subtle articulation or statement of what exactly the situation is. Um, either way, it's forced the government to be a little bit more blunt. Uh, and it's been fascinating to see in the last 24 hours that every time that a minister has been on the record or any sort of government spokesperson of any sort has been asked about it. And, I, and I've, I've witnessed three, three or four of these conversations in the last 24 hours uh, where a reporter now says, well, based on what Brussels is saying, there's clearly going to have to be checks somewhere if there's no deal. So where are they going to be? And the spokesperson will say, well, we already have a deal that takes care of that. And we say, yeah, but what if the deal doesn't get ratified or doesn't get approved and Britain leaves with no deal? Then what do we do? Uh, then they say hard conversations are going to have to be had. And then I say, well, where's the, where's the checks going to be? And they say, well, we're going to have to find some sort of a deal between the EU and the UK to ensure some sort of customs alignment, which is basically the deal that we've already got. So it seems the only way to avoid a hard border in the event of a no deal is to go back to the drawing board and draw up exactly the deal that we already have, which is seems to be the logic the government is clinging on to. It means that it all just sounds a little bit ropey right now. So unless there is, of course, the great Rubicon that behind the scenes they are planning for some sort of hard border and they just cannot possibly breathe a word for it for fear Gavin, of being crucified, uh, you know, it, it's interesting times. Gavin, for as long as, as, as I've been sitting in for Michael and this Brexit debate has been on the table, we have been told there are no plans for hard borders. We are not planning for hard borders. If you or I, or you and I, or whoever, were getting married on the 29th of March, by now we would have the hall booked, the DJ, the band, and the guests invited. Yeah, and it seems the government has basically taken the approach of some sort of don't tell the bride, saviour will come along with 10 grand in three weeks' time and somehow manage to pull off a venue that everything seems to be totally fine. And, and it is getting, you know, yesterday it seemed to just stretch the bounds of credibility that there could always have been the prospect of these plans being on behind the scenes. But And it'll be interesting to see whether the same spokesman for Brussels who'll be out again in about an hour and a half, whether he tries to qualify what he said yesterday, whether he tries to say that these conversations are ongoing or that nothing is set in stone or that there will have to be a border, but uh, a hard border, but not necessarily between the North and the Republic. All those things have to be seen, but certainly yesterday, and, and again, it's so interesting how every conversation you have with any government figure always pivots back to we have a deal on the table and we're focusing on that deal. And the other thing but that, we, that don't, we don't have a deal. No, we, we don't have a deal, of course, which is why then we keep saying, what are you going to do if there's no deal? And they'll say, well, effectively, we're just going to point back to the deal that we already have, which, of course, just completely stretches the level of credibility. Uh, one thing that one uh, government figure, uh, speaks to me off the record last night, suggested is that um, actually the, the, the government thinks that the storm of the last couple of days could well blow over, and what they're waiting for is what happens in Westminster next Tuesday. That is when the inverted commas plan B, whatever that plan B is, because it basically seems to be plan A put back in the microwave and reheated up. Uh, plan B is supposed to be voted on next Tuesday on the assumption that then that it's voted down a second time. Then the House of Commons formally takes control and that puts any number of options back on the table from an extension of the Brexit talks, the delay of Brexit itself, to the prospect of a second referendum. And it opens up a whole panacea of options, which mean that we might never get to the nuclear scenario of March the 29th with no deal and hard borders. And I think whether you think of it as being, uh, you know, good forward planning or whether you think of it as just being completely in denial, uh, the government is putting more than more than one eye onto what happens next Tuesday rather than the, yeah. the latest comment from whatever someone might be happy to ask in Brussels. Am I right? in thinking that they've already acquired land at Dublin Airport etc that in, in, in the event of needing or Dublin Port even in, in the event of needing more customs checks etc 
they have it earmarked, uh, but I believe, and this, this goes to show you just how, how far ahead the planning is, I'm not entirely sure that they've actually acquired the land yet, and certainly there's been talks... <laughs> the price, the price may be gone up by the day. Well, possibly so, yeah, and, and of course there's the other complication in Ross Lair that uh, it's one of those weird uh, quirks from, from when Ireland gained independence. Ross Lair Harbour isn't fully owned by the Irish state. It's half-owned by Irn Aaron and it's half-owned by the old railway company that used to serve Fishguard in Wales. So the Irish government doesn't even have the power to decide to just expand it and to, to build whatever it likes. So it's got all these areas earmarked for where they want to have the new checkpoints to be in the event of there being a no deal. But it hasn't actually set about trying to do that yet. But of course, this, we're, in these circumstances, we're talking about checks between East and West. And the government says that's fine because even in a no deal, everyone was expecting there to be checks between East and West anyway, so that's no problem. But then we go back and say, what happens North and South? Because bear in mind, Colin, that's something that the, the listeners might have, might have heard being glossed over a little bit. The European Commission has said in black and white, long before yesterday, nearly 12 months ago, that if there was a no deal, uh, any live animals would have to be checked upon entry to the EU at some point if they're leaving the United Kingdom. And that means that basically any livestock, for example, coming from north of the border into the Republic... Which is Newry to Dundalk. Let's let's bring it right back to local. Let's let's put it exactly on people's doorsteps. Newry to Dundalk. If you want to bring a a, a truckload of sheep from from Newry to Dundalk, uh, the European Commission says that if there is no deal, there will have to be checked at some point for compliance with EU standards. Now, Now, that potentially could happen at the very moment that they're leaving the farm. It could happen on, upon their arrival to wherever they're going in Dundalk. But the chances are it would probably have to happen on the actual border. And that, of course, means that even if it doesn't apply to people, it would apply to livestock. It's a hard border. And that's what the Irish government has been insisting that it hasn't been doing. That is why, by the way, uh, Shane Ross slightly got slipped up last week. And people might remember last week when Shane Ross was asked about this, Simon Coveney basically interrupted and answered the question for him. Shane Ross was asked if you had food or livestock coming from Scotland into Northern Ireland and then into the Republic, uh, will there be checks? And Shane Ross said, yeah, I'd imagine there probably would be. Only then for Simon Covey to interrupt and say, nah, and then to be caught off the microphone saying that actually, yeah, there probably would have to be, but we just have to discuss where exactly they're going to be. It, it all adds to this suspicion that somewhere up the government's leave, the current position being so untenable that they have to be planning for some sort of border arrangement, but it's just so far up their sleeve that they won't give a sight of it. Can they I, won't. They try to pretend that it's not there. I'm going to ask you a really stupid question, Gavin, because at one stage yesterday we heard about Rotterdam being being the por- point of entry for for produce from the UK into the European mm. Union, and it sounded like a beautiful South song the way they were they were throwing out names. <laughs> but Can we never Rome any yeah, I know, yeah. but but here's here's the stupid question, right? So if so if Rotterdam becomes the point of entry for British goods into the Euro- European Union, and I want to export my television from Newry to Dundalk. Does it have to go to Rotterdam to come back in? No, I think the idea was that if you were having Rotterdam or The Hague or, or Cherbourg or, or somewhere else, that effectively, uh, in order to avoid there being any borders between uh, Britain and Ireland, and I'm talking about the islands there rather than the countries, uh, you'd basically have to ring fence the whole thing. So effectively, you know when people talk about a sea border, the mm. idea of having some checks between the island of Ireland and the island of Britain, effectively you would take Britain and Ireland into one giant clump and then have uh, border checks once you reach the mainland continent. So basically anything running between Northern Ireland and the Republic would be totally okay, but then once you got... Is, is that not the backstop, basically? Uh, it, it effectively, it well, it's, it's sort of the backstop, but what it also means, if, the, if this is an idea that the government thinks is worth entertaining, what it effectively means is that uh, one of the reasons why Ireland has been so firm on staying inside the European Union because of its unencumbered trade to the continent it effectively means that we're going to be replicating some of the circumstances of Brexit for ourselves. And you see all this talk about how there'll be massive queues of trucks in Dover because of the extra paperwork on the way into Calais. 
we're basically deciding that at, at the if if it's what's necessary to avoid a hard border between Dundalk and Newry, that we're going to be copying and pasting the same arrangements for ourselves, where we want our trucks going from Cork to Roscoff or anywhere else to also have uh, further disruption. And even if it is only more paperwork, you know, it, it costs extra time. It's, it's uh, lorries and checkpoints. It's delays in supermarket deliveries. Uh, and it, it's interesting to see that this, this was something that might have been just thrown into the air by the government yesterday as a possible solution or whether this is something that they're looking at up their sleeves. Either way, it seems like we're almost copying and pasting some of the worst practical effects of Brexit for ourselves solely at the expense of avoiding a hard border, which seems to undermine some of the government's arguments for wanting to stay in the EU all along. And there's going to be an added cost to, to exporters in all of that and importers as well. Yeah, because supply chains and you know supplies to, to supermarkets, anything that comes from abroad, it has all now become such a fine art and the whole, you know, the science behind logistics. It's all so carefully managed that basically supermarkets now get the food uh, hours before they expect to sell it and it shows up at the, the back gates and it's a very streamlined production system. And, and you're looking at a situation then where anything that's coming from France to Ireland, for example, or anywhere from the continent to Ireland uh, over a ferry port could potentially then have to be checked for slightly longer on the way in, all of which means that the freight is more expensive, it's all delayed, you could be looking at some disruption to food supplies on shelves and ultimately the product that you get could be a little bit more expensive and no doubt the art of logistics would in time adapt itself to figure out how to cope with all of that, but it would mean in the short term that we would get a lot of the same side effects as the British people have been getting and it's, the, it's been those side effects that we've been politely pointing and laughing and saying what are you guys doing for yourselves and now it seems we could be volunteering to take on exactly the same stuff. Finally, Gavin, what can we expect from Brexit today? Uh, well, again, that same European Commission spokesman, Margarita Sheenas, is uh, due up to speak again in Brussels for the daily press conference in about 90 minutes. No doubt, one of the first things he'll be asked is to clarify the comments that he said yesterday to, to walk them back or to qualify into some degree or to see if there is some sort of prospect of there being, uh, you know, whether the border could be in Roscoff or Rotterdam instead of being somewhere on these islands. Um, there's also leaders' questions at 12 o'clock. Leo Varadkar, I think, is due to speak there just before he heads off uh, to Davos for the afternoon of the World Economic Forum. So no doubt he'll be asked to reply then. Uh, and uh, almost certainly the landscape as regards exactly how we're planning for a border will look as different this time tomorrow as it did this time yesterday. Rotterdam, beautiful south. Gavin <laughs> Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with Me Chronicle. Thank you for your time this morning and I've no doubt we will be back to Brexit probably tomorrow. Marie Cairns, good morning to you. Good morning, Carl. Brexit. It's the story that keeps on it's giving. It's the story that keeps on giving, but, but we're going to go. We're going to go local. Yes, we sure are. Uh, we're going to do the look. Look at the local papers today. They're all here in front of me. And first to the Dundalk Democrat. Skeletal remains on beach is the lead story of the Democrat, which reports that a member of the public made the gruesome discovery of what is being described as a hand whilst walking on Templeton Beach on Sunday. Inside the paper, there is a very good interview on page six with Talon's 10 dad of two, 37-year-old John Brennan, who speaks about his remarkable transformation following a heart transplant and is now on a mission to encourage more Irish people to donate their organs. Oh, am I coming across You're okay? Fine. Could Absolutely. you hear me? We'll yes. Just, we'll just turn up the volume slightly. You've tweaked. Tweet. You've tweaked. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope you got all that that's in the Dundalk <laughs> Democrat. Moving then to the Argus. Parish, this is a really interesting story, Carl. Parish in Call for Action is the headline of the lead story in the Argus. And it reveals that parishioners in Dundalk Parish are being asked to sign a petition calling on the Catholic Church to remove all barriers except for the seal of confession that prevent victims of clerical 
clerical abuse from getting justice. Margaret Roddy is reporting that congregations attending Mass in the Holy Family Parish on Sunday were told that the parish's pastoral council had decided to offer parishioners an opportunity to call for complete transparency in the seeking of justice in relation to the issue of abuse in the church at national and international levels. So that's a very interesting development there and you'd be watching to see if other parishes will follow suit. So that's in the Argus. Yes, indeed. Moving then to the Dundalk Leader, uh, the story that's on the front page there focuses on traders in Bridge Street in the town who the paper reports face an anxious way to find out if they'll be included for a funding upgrade under the government's Project Ireland 2040 programme. Traders were disappointed last year when it was announced that Bridge Street would not be part of the current upgrade of Clambrasa Street, St Nicholas Quarter, which got underway last week. So they're feeling left out there and hoping that something, there might be a lifeline down the road. Down the road. Andrada <laughs> is down the road. Yes, we we'll go first to the Drogheda leader. And this is another story that keeps on giving, uh, Cahill. Uh, we had Councillor Paul Bell on the show on Monday, uh, reporting that according to his sources, the name change of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital has been stalled, at least for now. And the Drogheda leader is reporting today that this has not gone away, with Des Grant writing that the senior management of the hospital outlined at two high-level meetings last week that they are proceeding with their plans to change the name of the hospital. One of those attending the meeting was uh, Senator Jed Nash, who was informed that the hospital management still intended to change the name, but it would not be happening this year due to budget constraints. We did, we did constraints. have that discussion with Paul. We did. And we did say when, that Jed Nash we had, had Paul said on. that yes. it, it may be on the long finger, it hasn't gone away. Yes, and uh, so that's the leader and the Drawhead Independent are also covering this on the front page of the paper. Hubert Murphy is writing that campaigners attempting to save the hospital name are going to take their case to the steps of the Dáil and the HSE, that members want to highlight the lack of consultation on the proposal to change the name of the hospital and have written to hospital management for more details of the name change timeframe, especially in light of Councillor Bell's comments. According to the Drogheda Independent, it is now likely that a written response from the hospital to the committee will decide what direction the campaign takes. So there's a lot more to play out on this. And of course... You know, we it could all be put to bed if the HSE would just let everybody know exactly and, what their intentions are. Them, as I'm um, sure everyone else has. I'm going to put another request put in another today request. to see if we can, you know, if we get any joy out of it. But when we were covering this initially, we did uh, contact them for a response. And uh, I mean, lots of people have been in touch looking for a written response. To your own royal county then. And my old alma mater. I, I, I'd say. like to say I'm saving the best to last, <laughs> just for you, Carl. <laughs> to Mead, uh, the Mead Chronicle. No horses, no dogs, no cards. That's the front page of the Mead Chronicle. Let me guess. Go on, guess, go on. Bettystown Beach. Yes, they're covering what, what we've been covering too, the beach management plan and the... Pu- the proposed bylaws for the Meads beaches. And uh, aside from that then, there was a story inside the paper that caught my eye. It's a story by Sally Harding and it's offering some hope for residents of Julianstown who are fed up with the traffic problems in the village. She's reporting that a speed table and pedestrian crossing are among a number of 
of um, steps being considered by the council in a bid to solve the traffic chaos in the the village on a daily basis. So, so that's, there's that's lots it. of Sally, reading. Sally Harding's story in the Mee Chronicle. Yeah, which, lots of reading in that. And if you if you're living in the village of Julianstown or you happen to pass through it on your way to your on your daily commute, it's 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 an interesting story there too. And Betty's Town Beach. Yes, or uh, another story. There'll be, that keeps there'll, be, on there'll be more on that too. Yes, uh, and I do say go out and support local media because, as you and I both know from our own histories, it's very, very important. Absolutely. So Brexit, we'll be back again tomorrow. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. And welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. Oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. As always, for your comments, and we will have Marie back in studio after ten o'clock with a look through the comments from yesterday and this morning, and no doubt Bettystown Beach and the movement of everything from cars and dogs and horses on Bettystown Beach will be one of the subjects that we will be talking about after the news at ten. One of the hot subjects in the world of sport at the moment is the hike in prices for GA tickets announced at the weekend. Thirty three percent league tickets have gone up in price this weekend. Of course. The National Football and Hurling Leagues kick off Mead against Tipperary in Partalton on Sunday including the new Bring a Ball campaign for kids where they can kick about at half time and loud against Longford in the National Football Leagues. Noel Rock is a Fine Gael TD for Dublin North West and a man with a keen interest in sport. Good morning to you Deputy Rock. Good morning Carl, how are things? I'm very good thank you. Your initial reaction to this price hike by the GA which sees as I say tickets go up 33% for the leagues, €20 Euro will be the walk up price for an adult going to a league game this weekend and the All-Ireland Final, and I've no doubt if Mead got there, I'd be quite happy to pay €90 Euros for a ticket for the All-Ireland Final, or even 45 to stand on Hill 16. You don't agree that this is a good idea? Absolutely not, no. I think um, you know, most of the games that I go to would be well attended by families, uh, and you know, the idea of having to pay uh, 33% more to attend with tickets going up from €15 Euro to €20, Euro, uh, it, you know, it seems quite steep, I think. Um, the reason being set forward by the GAA is kind of surprising. You know, they're saying that, yeah, they would have rather put it up by maybe two or three euro, um, but they don't want to be handing out change, basically. Um, so they've decided to bite the bullet and go from 15 to around 20 euro figure. Now, of course, I respect the GAA. I respect the economy. I respect the work that all the volunteers do week in and week out. Of course, that goes without saying. I, I love the GAA. Um, but I think many people who love the GAA are a bit taken aback by this. and a bit surprised by uh, the steepness of the raise in the prices. And I know why you'd be uh, delighted to pay uh, to go to the All Ireland Final. I also think it's unlikely, by the way. <laughs> yes, indeed. I was going to say, I, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll file that under, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, a lot of this seems to have taken people by surprise. There doesn't seem to be much warning that this was coming. No, I mean, it's sorry. To be fair, the president did say that last year. They they said at Congress, but it had it had gone away. We hadn't sort of thought about it for a while, had we? That's right, yeah. I mean, um, as far as I was concerned, it had effectively come out of the blue. Um, they hadn't talked about it since Congress. Uh, and now suddenly we, we, we've been told, basically, they'll be going up uh, next week. Um, so, you know, for, for, for regular people, uh, this is, it, it's a reasonable, it's a reasonable expense. You know, if four of you are going to a match, suddenly that's an extra 20 euro. Uh, in an environment where getting to away games in particular is already quite expensive, when the cost of public transport has gone up, when the cost of fuel has gone up, when the cost of eating out has gone up. Um, you know, it just seems like uh, for, for the average fan, for the average punter, uh, this is yet another additional cost. When all they want to do 
is give the support that they've done for years. Now there are various season tickets available that include access to local championship matches, local county finals, etc. So there are other ways around this. But for example, the former Monaghan midfielder Dick Clerken has been getting a lot of heat on social media because he said he's going to see Monaghan against Dublin on Sunday. He's going to pay his fifteen euro. He has his ticket already. His two kids will go in with him for free. And he also came out with this claim that an eight-year-old being asked to pay ninety euros for an All Ireland final ticket that an eight-year-old shouldn't be going to an All Ireland final. Um, well, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, one of the, the highlights for me uh, going to the, the ladies' final in particular in Croke Park the last two years has been the number of people, the number of young people who have been at those games. It makes for a very different atmosphere and a very, I think anyway, for them it seems, a very fun atmosphere. Um, you know, I think we should be getting as many young people uh, involved both in terms of participation but also in terms of spectating. Uh, for a lot of these players, for a lot of these people who are participating in the GAA at grassroots level, no matter whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, uh, the names uh, of the county team are naturally uh, the names that, you know, you dream about meeting, uh, you dream about playing alongside someday, and that you very much look forward to seeing and look forward to watching. And it's, and it's very much it's very much yeah, a unique yeah, GA yeah. thing that somebody who lives next door to you could be playing for me or for your, in your case playing for Dublin and, and they are part of your community you've also I mean you, you've been to Parnell Park you've seen the success at half time when the kids go out and kick a ball and me they're introducing that this Sunday they're also introducing double headers with ladies football so there's a lot of good things being done by the GA absolutely and you know let's, let's, let's not uh, let's not mince our words here certainly uh, the GA are doing some great work uh, at grassroots level uh, right across the country uh, you know, in every county and in every parish. There's no question about that at all. The only question here is, one, uh, why the need for such a steep increase in the fees, 33%, you know, when nothing else seems to be rising by 33% in the country in terms of cost. And then, two, uh, the suddenness of it. Um, you know, why wasn't this better flagged, I suppose, in previous months in the run into this? Uh, I just think for a lot of people, uh, they're going to be caught off guard um, they may not be aware. So I'm glad that you're having this item today because I don't think many people are aware that this rise is coming. And uh, I, I think they'll be a bit disappointed by it and they'll feel as though uh, HQ is out of touch with the grassroots and that's a, that's a common theme sometimes. You're not aware of any consultation between the GA and the government on this, are you? Because, of course, the government funds the GA as it funds every sport in the country. I No, no, I, I'm not aware. Like I mean, I'm a member of the European Committee on Sport and certainly it's never come before my desk and I'm not aware of it having come before the desk of either the Junior Minister for Sport, Brendan Griffin, uh, who's doing some great work on sports capital grants, including many GAA grants for uh, County Loud and Meath, or indeed Shane Ross, uh, the Senior Minister in that segment. I- I'm not aware of anything that's, that's come before us, though. Because one, one of the statements that was made by the President, John Horan, was that this will generate €500,000 this year to go back to the clubs after everything else is taken into account, and 500000 next year, so that's a million euros. It doesn't seem an awful lot to justify a 33% price hike. No, I mean, in terms of like the, the, the burden, if you like, for the individual, you know, 33% increase. Again, uh, while it may not be a lot to some people, uh, an extra five euro, you know, is the difference for many families uh, in terms of going versus not going. Um, so you do have to ask the question, is this worthwhile? Or will it mean, as I see on Facebook an awful lot, a lot of people saying, that's it, that's the last straw, I can't afford to go anymore. And I think for a few people that will be the case. And we have seen the case where Croke Park, particularly in football, has not been full for championship games. No, that's right. And that's becoming a feature of Dublin games, unfortunately, as well. Uh, the Super 8s last year, uh, you know, they weren't full. No game was full. Uh, even the Dublin semi-final last year, that, that wasn't really a sellout. Uh, and even for the final, uh, for the first time in my life, I was being offered tickets outside the stadium. 
Um, so you know, maybe maybe that's a, a symptom of Dublin, maybe in you know our, our continued success to a certain extent. But it's also, I think, a, a yeah, d- dominance. I think is the word. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> dominance. I, or, or maybe it's the case that um, you know, uh, quite simply, people can't afford to go. Uh, you know, it is steep. Can I, can I switch codes with you very briefly before we finish up? And I know you, you, you've been talking to Niall Quinn, who has had many things to say about League of Ireland football and about Irish soccer of late. There, there is a plan to bring Niall and, and some of his uh, fellow um, constituents into meet the government, isn't there? That's right, yeah. So we had that meeting with Niall uh, and with some of his uh, constituents and colleagues there on uh, Friday of last week. Um, and yeah, it was a productive discussion uh, about grassroots soccer, which is something I care deeply about. And about what we can do to improve grassroots soccer, improve the schoolboy game, and improve that kind of that feeder system up into League of Ireland, and thereby improve League of Ireland and hopefully mm. improve. And, and in terms of go- in terms of government, I mean, who who was there with you? Uh, well, I, I don't really want to go into the specifics if you don't mind, because it's, it wasn't my meeting per se; it was more their meeting, and they seem to be happy enough to keep things quiet for the minute. I know some of it was leaked to uh, to one of the newspapers. Um, but for the, for the time being, you know, I mean, I'm happy to talk about what Niall wants to achieve. Um, but at this point in time, it's all very, very tentative. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of people in business involved, a number of people in education involved, and indeed a number of people in politics involved. Um, but it's kind of one of those things, kind of like Brexit, I suppose, <laughs> where uh, nothing's agreed until everything's agreed. Um, so I think by, by giving away too many details, you might... Uh, you might okay, but he, but he has definitely prompted a debate on the future of Irish football, hasn't he? No question about it. Yeah, you know, he has prompted a debate. And that debate is needed, of course. I think anyone who follows the national game would say that, unfortunately, things do not look bright right now at the senior level in the national game. And I think every real soccer fan would say, you know, we need to do everything we possibly can to improve the lot of soccer, be that at League of Ireland level, be that at underage national level, or be that in the schoolboy game. You know, we need to be uh, tearing up three stumps to try and do whatever we possibly can to improve the game. And you think there is a willingness within the cabinet and, and within the, the doll to do whatever needs to be done to get that over the line? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a number of people uh, who, who genuinely do care about soccer in the cabinet. Um, and I think they see what we all see, uh, which is that, you know, action is needed here. You know, if you look at Iceland, if you look at Belgium, they have very much had the last decade, decade and a half, uh, top-down, uh, somewhat government-organised programmes which have aided and assisted uh, through very focused funding uh, the grassroots game and fed it up from there through schoolboy level uh, into their national leagues respectively and then in national game and the national team at underage and at senior level. And that seems to be the sort of intervention that's needed here. I don't think it, it, it's right that we continue down the current strategy and the current road and kind of hope that it'll be all right on the night when it comes to the senior team because that's not how other countries are organising themselves anymore and probably isn't how we should be organising ourselves anymore either. Well, Deputy Noel Rock, Fine Gael TD for Dublin North West, we thank you for your time this morning and I look forward to chasing you for a ticket when we get to the All-Ireland Final. We'll be back with the news <laughs> headlines after this. Thank you, Deputy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. Marie is back in studio with your comments. Welcome back, Marie. Thanks indeed, Cahill. And um, I'll kick off just with a couple of comments in response to your interview at the top of the show with Deputy Pat Casey. A text from a listener to say that the government has also let the children of this country down by giving them the bank debt. 
Another listener, if the cause of these children being at A&E is being homeless and otherwise, in other words, if they have the, the ailments that they have is caused by homelessness, then shame on this government. This comes in from Margaret. Unfortunately, the homeless crisis is taking a back seat now because of Brexit and nobody seems to care. And we're, o- we're over 10,000 people homeless at this moment in time. Yes, Grania phoned in. That was a, an actually a lovely comment because she says, I was sitting in front of my blazing fire last night and I was feeling almost guilty thinking about the people who are on the streets and don't have a home. It's so cold now, particularly in the past couple of nights when you see the frost and you really have to feel sorry for anyone on the streets. The government is letting its people down by not addressing this housing problem. And last night will bring that home to so many people because last night was particularly cold. It was. And you just the thoughts of anyone having to be on the street on a night like that. Uh, moving then, if we can, to the B word, Brexit. Seamus says, and in fairness to Seamus, he has been saying this all along, that we would end up with a hard border. He never held out much hope and he's saying now it's looking that way. And he finishes off with his phone call by saying, God help us all, because Seamus is not too optimistic for the future. Mark from Trim on the same topic says that he fears the EU is beginning now to put pressure on Ireland over the backstop and our government needs to stand firm and let them know no uncertain terms that this will not be acceptable. And neither will it be acceptable for us to be treated as if we are part of the UK if it comes to a border being located in Rotterdam or wherever else in Europe you'll be mentioning, Carl. And um, we had a very interesting conversation with Gavin Riley earlier in the programme and, and we still don't know what's going to happen. No, George. Six, 65 days out. George says, does the, does, does the UK not have any loyalty to the North? They know that it will be a disaster for the North if there's a hard border but they don't seem to give a fiddlers. What does that tell the people of the six counties, many of whom fought and lost their lives so they could be part of the same UK? And the majority of whom voted to remain in the European Union. That's right. Uh, On the GAA ticket prices. We've had a couple of comments already in relation to that. Uh, Cahill, it's not right that they're putting up the ticket prices for football matches. That's a text from Mary in Trim. Mairead phoned in and she thinks that the GAA is pure greedy. You can't even watch all the games now unless you have Sky. Unfortunately, they don't think about their ordinary members and lovers of the game. It seems to be all about money and to me it's just wrong. A bit steep, says Deirdre from Kells. They should have consulted with people and talked it over but suddenly the prices have gone up. They are the grab all association. Had you heard not, that? Not yeah. the first time I've heard I, that. I'd never heard that saying <laughs> no, before I, about the grab all association. Uh, That made me chuckle, I have to say. Uh, Another listener on the same topic says that five euro may not seem much to the (laughs) <laughs> to the big boys in the GAA but it is it, it is a lot to a lot Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out My solution is Plush Care Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey They can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. ...other people, and especially if there's a couple of adults in one family going to a game and things that putting it up by such an amount is far too much. Why could they not have just put it up by one euro? Because they then would have had a major issue with change at the turnstiles. I think that was one of the reasons why they, oh, they explained it as being a five euro increase. In heaven forbid now they'd have to give out a change. <laughs> Moving from that then uh, to we, Tommy was listening in to um, your interview at the top of the programme and or your, not the interview, that your running account of what was coming up in the show, mm. your menu so to speak uh, and he was ringing in in connection with uninsured drivers which I know we're going to be covering and he his belief is that if someone's caught driving without no insurance, that the cars should be confiscated and crushed, that there's a mandatory fine of €2,000 to stop uninsured drivers, that that's what he thinks should happen. If they haven't a car, they can't be driving around again and a a person can't be a repeat offender if his car is crushed. He said he's sick of decent, hardworking people paying insurance and are to the pin of their colour trying to pay it. And then you see these... Uh, ones that drive with no insurance only getting a suspended sentence and small fines of a couple of hundred. So we will be covering that later with, with on. With Paul Murphy. Yes, it's, it's a very yeah. fascinating report Paul has, has put together. Now, we mentioned this in the programme yesterday. There is progress on the slain bypass. At last, there appears to be uh, white smoke. And joining us now on the line to discuss this is Councillor Wayne Harding, Fianna Fáil Councillor and Meath County Council. Good morning to you, Wayne. Good morning, Carl. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. White smoke? Yes, uh, well, th- there has been for a while, but it has been slow. Um, but the uh, council have told me at, at a Air Monkey meeting that um, they will announce uh, the preferred route option in the next few weeks. Uh, they, they just at the moment they're informing the, the affected landowners al- along the route. Do we have any idea what their preferred route is at this stage? I can't uh, preempt that, but. Um, I, all I can say is my my own opinion is that it will be it will be reverting back to the original route that was refused with the, with the um, with the reasons for refusal addressed. Okay, so if, if I'm coming from Ashbourne towards Slane, roughly where will I be turning off to to avoid Slane? Um, just just the far where you where you turn right for the World Heritage Site of yeah. Newgrange. Um, uh, Magruder's Cross, it's called locally, just below that. And then we'll cross the Boyne and come back out? The far side of the, of the grassland school, factory. Of the school, etc. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. It, it will take the, the full village out. What will that mean for the people of Slane? I'll tell you exactly what it would mean. Um, the, the Slane National School is on the N2, sits on the N2. Mm-hmm. 
every single housing estate in Slane Village, um, every child that goes to Slane School must enter the N2 to get to school. That's one thing what it means. But it will take horrific traffic congestion that goes through, that goes across roughly whichever book, history book you read, between four and 600-year-old bridge in a one-way system with extraordinary traffic calming measures that have been there, that were, that were put in temporarily, supposedly temporarily, 20 years ago and are still there. Gantries, uh, anti-slip uh, mechanisms, a, a, a really com- complex traffic lights. That that will all be that will all become a, literally a cul-de-sac. But it, so, so there there is no chance that traffic will continue to be able to access tra- Slane via the bridge as it stands. Um, no, well, well, the, oh yeah, local access, of course. Mm. No, the, 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 it won't. But how, how how do you keep the traffic out? Because we've we've seen in Dunchalkin, for example, where the bypass the motorway was to take a lot of the traffic out. It hasn't actually taken a whole lot of the traffic out. Slane, Slane is a completely different uh, situation and the, and the population wouldn't be the same locally. There is no way you'd go across that bridge if you had a different option. If you, were, if you, if you didn't have to go through Slane Village, and, you wouldn't go through it. And hopefully, Wayne, this will bring an end to the so many tragic stories we've seen at the bridge over the years. Absolutely. It's all about health and safety. And, and there's still accidents ongoing, uh, thankfully, not facially. And, and traffic calming measures have been put in place and reduced the risk. But the, but living life in a small village is just—it's chronic traffic, and it's and it's it's a, it's, a, it's a daily problem. And something will happen again, and it could happen outside that school. And then whose fault was it? And and where is the blame going to go to? And and most importantly, this has been forensically examined, and um, with new legislation, uh, the TII and Meath County Council were able to. Uh, meet with Umbor Pabnala ahead of it. That hadn't happened before. So there has a huge, there has been a huge amount of work put into it. That that took time. But now what I want is government money and this government to move it as quickly as possible and build it. And finally, Wayne, you, you, Wayne you've, you've led me into my, my final question. In terms of the timeline, first of all, when will you be presented with the route? And secondly, how long do you think it will take for this road to be built? Um, well, as regards the, the, the project, I mean, when these things get the green light with an oral hearing, you're talking about 18 months or so. Um, we hope to have this go out in public consultation, the final, the finalised preferred route go out in public consultation by the end of February. Um, and the stakeholders will be... So then you have to move through the processes and get to an oral hearing. I think you could see, I think you could see the road built. But there is one problem. There's a lot of people, for various reasons... Will will not want this road to be built, which is wrong, because the M1 will eventually like there's going to be a million more people living on the island by 2040. But there will be huge, there will be a massive objection to this uh, um, road, which is totally, totally wrong. The N2 is becoming unsustainable, and there's loads of issues along it. We're trying to cross and Primestown. So I'm looking at three to five years, but. We're going to have to fight and fight and fight because that's what we've always had to do. And it was refused before. We'll have to wait and see. Councillor Wayne Harding. Thank you very much. Fianna Fáil Councillor, County Council, thank you for your time this morning. Marie, good news there for the people of Slane. Possibly. Possibly. And as he says, there probably will be objections and hopefully that won't hold the whole thing up for too long because you and I would have 
both reported on many um, over the years. It's, it's, it's awful it's tragedies uh, involving that bridge. And if you, you, you I do any time I cross it, I feel I'm taking mm. my life in my own hand. I don't know about you. Uh, I, I visit that area regularly because I have a family mm. member living in Slane. Uh, so and, it, and and it will be good news to the residents that there Wayne is something said, happening. I, mean, I crossed the N2 coming here all this week, and and the traffic jam has gone into Ashbourne and the backup, etc. For, for anybody commuting, and, and there are more and more people commuting, the N2 is a nightmare. That's right. Well, look, I'm going to. I have no more time for comments. I may get back into later on because I have a couple of more here from people. So um, if I don't get to them today, I will get we'll to them get tomorrow. Them tomorrow. And thanks as always for that. As always, as well. Oh eight six one eight hundred. Keep them coming. Is our text number, and you can also get us on Twitter and across social media. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin. On Monday's programme, we spoke to Daniel McConnell, political editor of the Irish Examiner, about his story in the paper that morning, which said that households which excessively use or, or waste water will be given a year to reduce their consumption before they face being fined under plans to be approved by the Cabinet. It said that up to 80,000 customers who are likely to use more than the permitted generous annual allowance, and I'm quoting, face being fined up to €260, Euros, it is believed. The Examiner learned that Housing Minister Owen Murphy was to bring a memorandum seeking approval for the scheme which will see the way cleared for a charging regime to be introduced from 2020. Joining us now to discuss this with his reaction to that story is Deputy Paul Murphy, Solidarity TD for Dublin South West. Good morning to you Deputy. Good morning Carl, thanks for having me on. Has that proposal been made to government? Are we now looking at €260 Euro fines for anybody who uses excess water? Um, I mean what, what this is um, as far as I can tell, is the implementation of effectively the deal that was done between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, which saw the end of the old charging regime, but inserted this backdoor of so-called excessive usage charges. And they are charges rather than fines. It's a, it's a volumetric amount. So the amount you use, the more you will, you will pay. Um, and they certainly planned to introduce this from to start charging people from next year. The things that are new here is, one, that they've delayed it uh, yet again. Um, They've delayed it twice now by six months, both times, and I think it shows their right to be very nervous about the political backlash to attempting to go for water charges. And uh, recent recent history would would tell us why they're right to be cautious. Uh, Exactly. Um, And the other thing that is definitely worth noting, that if, if they did implement these charges, well, then they talk about, oh, you know, very excessive usage, etc. But actually, because everybody from a one-person household to a four-person household would receive the same allowance, a four-person household would very easily go over the threshold. A four-person household would only have to use slightly more than the average per person in order to be faced with uh, a charging uh, regime. The, and the government me- memorandum, and, and according to the examiner, uh, Paul, says that the the figure th- that they they are proposing, 213,000 litres of water, is 1.7 times the average consumption. Yes, yeah, so it's 1.7 times the average consumption for the average household. However, if you're a one-person household, you get that amount. But if you're a four-person household, you also get that amount. And so for a four-person household, it isn't 1.7 times the average usage, it's only 1.2 times the average usage. So 20% more usage per person would bring people into the charging regime because... But would it not be fair to suggest that the average household in Ireland is not one person? The average household in Ireland is 2.75 people. Um, So, therefore, if if you've got a four-person household, the way the thing is set up, you're being discriminated against. 
In ter- um, you, 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 so you don't think, first of all, that the figure of, of 213,000 litres is a fair one? Um, I, I, I don't, for certainly for four-person households, but more fundamentally, I, I don't agree with the whole idea of charging for excessive usage because I think, and if anybody looks at the experience in terms of college registration fees, which started at €50, Euro, ended up now at €3,000, look at bin charges, look at what they attempted in water charges, people will rightly distrust this government and think, I think correctly, that this is a Trojan horse for the reintroduction of full charges because the government has the power, without going back to the doll, to reduce the 1.7 to 1.6, to 1.5, to 1.4, to 1.3, whatever, however low it wants. The government can unilaterally reduce that, as can the, the charges per litre can also be unilaterally increased by, uh, I think it will be Comreg, will be in, increasing the the price. So if they get away with it, which I don't think they will, then this is, you know, the thin edge of a, of a wedge in terms of re-establishing the, the principle of commodification of water. And then over time, the allowances will be reduced, the prices will go up, and then you're back to a full water charge. You're back to square regime. one. Yeah. In, ter- in terms of as well, I mean, you've, you've, made, you've made the point in, in your own release on this that the average house in Ireland uh, with the housing crisis, with the, the price of houses, with the, even only this week we've seen that Facebook are bringing, I think it's a thousand more jobs into Dublin. There was 1,500 jobs announced last week. So the cost of accommodation is going to go up and that's going to put more pressure on young people to remain at home, which is going to bring up the average size of the household. Exactly. And that's what we've seen in recent years in Ireland is a, a steady increase upwards of the average household size. We know that there's half a million young people living in their parents' houses at the moment, presumably the, the vast majority of whom, if there wasn't such a housing crisis, which Owen Murphy also presides over, um, they will be able to you know, access housing, rent housing or whatever, and, and move out. Um, and so they, they do have, if, if you have a five-person household, you get an extra allowance for the fifth person and then for the sixth person, person and seventh person. But the way they set up the scheme is that, in particular, four-person households and, to a lesser extent, three-person households will be uh, discriminated uh, against. I mean, the, the other group, though, that will be massively discriminated against is, um, and a reason that I think they'll be defeated because of mass political opposition, um, as well as um, the fact that 40% of households don't have water meters. So I don't have a water meter. Nobody in Tala has a water meter. About slightly 60% of people in my constituency don't have a water meter. None of them can ever face these excessive usage charges. They cannot possibly charge us for it. So it, it's fundamentally unjust. Can they, can they not just make another attempt to put the water meters in? I mean, they could, but I think that would be a very, very bad I'm, move. I'm, I'm being slightly facetious with you there, Paul. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. I think that the political reality is that the areas in general that are not metered are the areas that had the strongest opposition to water charges that saw big protests against water metering. They have agreed that they will not attempt to impose water meters on pre-existing houses. And so that leaves them with a situation where if they're going to push ahead with this, well then people in, for example, Dundrum, or other areas that have been metered, they can face these charges, but nobody in Tala can face these charges. And that goes against the principles of, of equity, of equal treatment that they supposedly signed up for from the, the Arrakis Committee that came out after the water charges. So I think they face you know, very major obstacles to actually moving ahead with this. Mass political opposition, on the one hand, the political price they'll pay for it, and on the other hand, the very fact that almost half the population do not have water meters 
and cannot possibly char- be charged um, or monitored for their so-called excessive usage. I'm going to quote you again from your, your press release, and you said that this attempted reintroduction of charges is the fruit of Fianna Fáil's betrayal of its election promise. Now, we, we were already discussing the housing crisis this morning with, with a, a Fianna Fáil deputy, and, and the reality is that Fianna Fáil are propping up this government, but Fianna Fáil don't seem to want to accept that they are part of the government. Why do you say it's a betrayal of their election promise? Because if, if you go back and read the Fianna Fáil manifesto, uh, if you read their election leaflets, they were extremely clear. They were for abolition of Irish water, which hadn't been abolished, and they were for abolition of water charges. And they didn't say anywhere that we're for abolition of these water charges, but we want another form of excessive usage charges. And the way all of that played out in the, the committee, which was set up you know, in the aftermath of, of the election to look into the expert report, um, is that we were on the road to agreeing a report which would have had no charges whatsoever. Then the government pulled out all sorts of legal advice. We, could, we, can, we pulled out legal advice to back up our argument, saying that we need to have some sort of charges and they applied big pressure on Fianna Fáil, who then agreed in backroom deal with the government to agree to some form of, of charges. So, I mean, we knew in the last election, and it's fair enough in a sense, Fine Gael are in favour of water charges. Presumably they're still in favour of water charges, which is why we shouldn't trust them on, on this when they bring in excessive usage charges that they won't be a road back to full charges. But Fianna Fáil said that they were against water charges and yet have signed up for a scheme which will, if they get away with it, see the return of water charges. Do you think the timing of 2020, uh, which is post-local election and post-euro election, is very deliberate? Yeah, it's very cynical. I mean, they... uh, So the whole thing was originally this was meant to happen in 2019. And now, bit by bit, the date has gone back a year until 2020. Um, I do think they have a problem again, though, because we are very likely to have an election early in 2020, so uh, which will be a general election, and so the the same political pressure will come to bear again on them. I mean, and they have to look. I mean, the Labour Party was almost wiped out. They went from 37 seats to 7 seats in the doll. That wasn't just about the water charges, but the water charges was like a concentrated expression of their betrayal, of their signing up to austerity, and they paid a very serious political price. And I think Fianna Fáil in particular, because they advertised themselves as opposing water charges, could pay you know an important price too if they were to proceed with these if i could deputy ask you very quickly before we go in terms of today live radka's question time and there's a, a press statement coming out very soon from from brussels your thoughts on the current brexit impasse if i could ask you that well i think on the very latest stuff i mean we've been warning about this all along that the a strategy of kind of looking big and strong and standing up to the brits because the european commission are behind you at this stage, but basically the European Commission to, to back your position up was always extremely risky because the European Commission, just like the Tory governments, don't really care about ordinary people on this island. They don't really care about ordinary people uh, in, the, in the north. And so it was a very risky strategy that always had the potential for the European Commission to pull the plug from it because they also have other interests. They're not only interested in the border. So it's obviously a bit early to say that that's definitely what's happening, but certainly there are worries that that is uh, what is happening. I think the best thing from ordinary people's point of view in this country that could happen is that the British government collapse and that there will be a general election which would pose the possibility of a second, a second referendum. Well, I, I think I think I think a second referendum would be like 
an incredibly divisive event that will pose real opportunities for the like radical hard right in Britain. I think uh, a general election which puts Corbyn in power, who is committed to not having the EU neoliberal rules, for example, on state aid, which would prevent the imposition of his programme, but is committed to customs and trade arrangements, which would mean no um, hardening of borders between north-south or between east-west. I think that's the best possible scenario for, for us. We've seen three separate shots across the bows over the last sort of 48 hours. I mean, the Polish foreign minister said that he would be prepared to consider a five-year uh, backstop limit, which we were told that was a private view. But, I mean, then that was followed by Margarita Schinnes saying that a hard border was inevitable. And then this morning, Michel Barnier has said that in the effect of a no-deal Brexit, there would be a hard border. So... The 27 against 1 is starting to become sort of 26.7% against 1, is it? Or mm-hmm. are, are we seeing this division emerging? I, I, I mean, I'm obviously not close enough to it to know for sure, but it certainly looks that way. And, I mean, I actually missed Minister Creed's interview in Morning Ireland this morning, but by all accounts from social media, there's a car crash of him trying to explain how... There'd be no deal, but still he's still no. he's still maintaining that there is no need to consider a hard border because they're going to have a resolution. Yeah, and then the Irish government's line is, well, what if there's no deal? And the Irish government says, well, there, there, then there'd have to be a deal. <laughs> what if there's no deal? Then there'd have to be a deal. And um, you know, the mood music from Brussels is not really good in terms of them being willing to move away from the idea of uh, of a backstop. Um, so I think we need to see what. I think what happens today, there's another press conference of the European Commission, I think at 11 o'clock. They were, again, how they answered those questions um, will be significant. But the point is, for me, I mean, the idea that the European Commission cares about ordinary people anywhere in Europe, they really don't. Look at what they did to people in this country before in terms of the so-called bailout and reality of the European banking system. Look at what they did to the people in Greece. Look at what they do to migrants trying to enter the European Union. I think... In this whole debate and in a reaction to, you know, the mad Tory right, there's a danger of people developing, you know, a rose-tinted view of the European Union, which is extremely unwarranted, and people developing a trust in the European Commission, which again would be very unwarranted and unwise, in my opinion. Well, Deputy Paul Murphy, Solidarity TV for TD, even, apologies, for Dublin South West. We thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the Michael Reid Show with me, Cahill Dervin of the Irish Sun. Just a reminder, as always, that our text number is 086-1800-658, 086-1800-658, which also serves as our WhatsApp number, and you can get us on Twitter at LMFM Radio and across Facebook and Instagram and all social media. And if you do have a comment, we would be delighted to hear it. Now, recent figures released by the Motor Insurers Bureau of Ireland say that there are 150,000 estimated uninsured vehicles operating on Irish roads. I'll just read that out to you again. 151,000 uninsured vehicles operating on Irish roads. A man who has conducted a fascinating survey into the local situation in Meath is Paul Murphy, local freelance journalist who covers Trim District Court. And Paul has surveyed the cases going through Trim District Court in 2018, which showed 136 recorded convictions for no insurance. Good morning to you, Paul. Uh, Good morning, Carl. A fascinating piece of work, Paul, and I'm sure it, it, it took time. Well, it did, uh, but the position, I, I had noticed that uh, 
the number of people coming before the court for in, in insurance cases had, had gone up quite considerably. Now, I don't have figures for that, but uh, it, it seemed to me that, that there was a large increase. Now, the, that, that may be, that, that, that's probably down to the fact that Gardaí have increased uh, detection and vigilance. So uh, I'd say that, that that's down to that. But it, it, there were some surprising things, but not really surprising in the sense that most of the people convicted were between 20 and 40, the younger age group. I have, I have your figures here in front of me. So between 20 and 30, there were 64 uninsured drivers convicted in Trim Court last year. And between yeah. 30 and 40 years of age, there were 35. Yeah. I'm assuming most of them will say that the cost of insurance was prohibitive. Yes, that's, that's the, mo- the most common explanation coming before the court. Uh, the uh, people say, "Look, I, co- I couldn't afford it." Now, the problem—the problem, of course, with that is that for those uh, on a uh, first conviction, uh, the fine is normally uh, the average fine is about seven hundred and fifty. But of course, that creates enormous problems then down the line when you have to go for a new cover. You, I mean, you're, you're supposed to declare a conviction, and if you have a conviction, then. You know the um, the cost spirals. Premium is going to go up. So uh, then, of course, uh, after that, if you have a previous conviction, uh, the fine can range between a thousand and fifteen hundred, and then you you have a driving ban. If you have if you have a second conviction, the driving ban of two years is automatic. And you have no choice in that. That's there and and done. No, that's it. That's it. There's no way out of that. I, in fact, in in in, in Trim Court yesterday the main court for the criminal cases. Uh, the, uh, there was one uh, driver who said he had taken out the insurance one day after being stopped by the Garda, but in any case, he was fined. So there was no escape. There's no escape. What's the solution, do you think, Paul? Um, well, of course, the, <laughs> the point is that the... I suppose cheaper cheaper insurance rates, but where where do you get that? Who's going to look for that? And these people aren't helping and with where, the rates as, as you've outlined. No, and where are you going to get it? Mm. Mind you, I, I can tell you, I had an I had an insurance policy myself from 1985, and I was paying 450 euro at that stage. Sorry, 450 pounds, pounds at pounds, that yeah. stage. So uh, uh, look, it, it's it's inescapable. You're going to have to pay. You want to go on the road. Simple as that. And the problem, of course, then, is as the Motor Insurers Bureau of Ireland are, are one of the bodies overseeing all of this, of course, is that 151,000 uninsured vehicles, if they have a crash and, and you are the, the person who's affected by this, you then have to go through a whole court procedure and through a compensation fund, etc., because that person is not insured. Well, that's the point. But then there's a, there's, there's a change coming about in that where the insurance companies, first of all, they are going into deep investigation of crashes, and you know you, you can see yourself from the from the media. There are uh, cases where there are spurious claims. Uh, in fact, in the Irish Times the other day, um, I saw a, a a claim by four or five people being withdrawn halfway through the case when the um, when one of the applicants became. Uh, came under under fierce cross examination by a barrister for the insurance company. So you you have some spurious cases coming forward. We we even have tourist uh, traffic in this, believe it or not, with people coming over from the UK in particular, staging accidents and then taking on the insurance companies. 
Well, that's the point too. But it, it, people people need to realise too that if, if you're uninsured, one of the problems now is that the insurance companies will go after your assets. And, you know, you can have your vehicle seized by a sheriff. You know, there could be mandatory debt repayments, bankruptcy proceedings, you know, there's, there's a, there's, and possibly the mandatory sale of your home and even imprisonment. So, you know, uh, this, is, this is what people are facing. I'm just going to bring you back to, to the survey because five teenagers were, were convicted of no insurance. Yeah. And one gentleman or woman, I don't know, between the ages of 60 and 70. That's right. Well, it was, you know, the um, you, you would think somebody between 60 and 70 would have would learned. Know better. <laughs> you know, but, but that's, that's the position. Um, uh, the, the, the most disturbing cases are between, between the ages of 20 and 40. And it's, it's it's very concerning. But we also did uh, the the other survey. The other part of the survey was about uh, drink driving. And uh, you know, contrary to um, uh, common belief, uh, that it was older drivers who were more or less, you know, willing to take a chance. On yeah, the road. because you, you you would think from listening to Michael Healy Ray, for example, that it's only farmers living up mountains who who uh, need to go down the mountain to go and have their drink, and they would all tend to be elderly. That's not the yeah. case. That's not the case no, on the ground. No, no, but of 36 recorded convictions for drunken driving in Trim uh, last year, um, you had um, 21 between the age of 20 and 40. There was uh, just six between 40 and 50, and six between 50 and 60. And again, so, and again, one teenager. Yes, and one teenager in that, yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, the guard of vigilance. We, we we made reference to it earlier on, but I mean, the guards are more vigilant now, and they are more present on the road. Well, they are. One one of the problems, of course, for for drivers is that when when detections take place, a lot of people are, have insurance, and then they take it to the guard the station and produce the insurance. But then sometimes the system there are holes in the system, and the system hasn't recorded those facts. And it, it ends up that people are dragged into the court. I mean, the judge, uh, Judge Cormac Dunn, yesterday had to apologise to two or three people for having been brought to court, you know, um, without reason. When they had, they, they, had, they, they had, they had complied. insurance, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about the uh, the fifty seven year old uh, who appeared in Trim Court last year, who was already serving a twenty five year ban when he was caught. Yeah, he was. He was. Um, I mean. He had a he had a long record apart from apart from, from driving, but he he got to he carried a ban of of, of twenty five years, and when he came before the court in February, then he was fined four hundred euro, and disqualified for four years. But the um, one would have thought now uh, that he might have uh, incurred a prison sentence along with that. I mean, how how do you stop people if people continually, you know? go on the road while under the influence, you know, or mm. uninsured, and then collect collect several bans along the way. What was to be done? And, and, and presuming, Paul, to, to, to have a 25-year ban hanging over you, you've, you, he must have been fairly regular before the judge before that. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's 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 the problem. And, and then, did, he, did he have an excuse? Uh, no, he didn't really. No, no. He just, he had his record and that was it. And, uh, uh, off he went, but I mean, you could you could put a ban of fifty years or a lifetime ban, but with some people, it doesn't matter. They still go back on the road. Can you go to prison for this? Oh, you can go to prison, but you can go to prison. But 
I think the em- the emphasis in courts now is not to not to jam up the prison cells, mm. and and uh, you'll find that people, you know, the judges, uh, generally speaking, now, not not individually, but generally speaking, they'll they'll try to avoid sending somebody to prison, you know, by using whatever whatever means, uh, suspended sentences, um, you know, a community service, things like that, in order to avoid sending people to prison because the the prisons are overloaded. Paul Murphy, local freelance journalist, thank you so much for your time this morning and for giving us the detail on your report into motor insurance uh, cases at Trim District Court during the year of 2018. We're going to take an ad break. Michael Reed on LMFM. This is the Michael Reed Show and welcome back to the programme. Now I'm going to read two headlines from the local papers in Dundalk. From the Democrat, crisis meeting held for parade and from the Argus, time running out for town's parade. This is all in relation to the St. Patrick's Day parade in Dundalk. Uh, Brexit may be 65 days away but St. Patrick's Day is 12 days before all of that and join us to discuss the future of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dundalk is Anne Campbell, the Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council and a member of the Dundalk St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee. Good morning to you, Anne. Good morning, Cal. Big question. Will there be a parade in Dundalk this year? Well, unfortunately, Cal, that's something I can't answer with, uh, with surety right now. We have our first uh, committee meeting tomorrow at noon in Dundalk and um, at the meeting last week that was organised by Dundalk Chamber of Commerce I attended along with a number of other councillors and um, we spoke about the need for having something in Dundalk for St Patrick's Day Um, I think the background to it is that um, Dundalk Chamber of Commerce were involved in organising, they were one of the key organisers of the St Patrick's Day Parade in Dundalk for many years and uh, at the end of the parade in 2018 they made a decision that they just didn't, because of staffing issues at the chamber, they didn't have the resources to commit to the 2019 parade. Um, and they um, have met with officials in Louth County Council in November and December of um, 2018 and hence the meeting at the County Museum last week to try and put a committee together to do something for St Patrick's Day. Now I'm assuming since we're coming to the end of January and, and you're having the... the but it's essentially your first planning meeting tomorrow. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that a fair assessment of it? Yeah, it so, is. And so so t- look, time time is not helping here. Yes, time time is not helping. But, um, you know, I think there was a view in some quarters that would it be better not to have anything for St. Patrick's Day in Dundalk in 2019 and to focus all the energy and attention on 2020 when Cambrassa Street, which is being um, regenerated at the moment, but it's going to take a year, um, when Cambrassa Street would be back um, to uh, hopefully to its glory, um, and then um, 2020 would be the the time to focus on it and not do anything this this year. It was something that I couldn't countenance, um, Cahal, because as I said at the meeting, the um, we cannot Dundalk's response 12 days away from from Brexit, which is what the 17th of March would be this year, could not be well. We'll do nothing for St Patrick's Day, so. Hence, that's why there, there's a, a committee there, and the um, the look. I'm not saying there won't be a parade, but I, personally, I think it, it's just too big an ask at, at this particular moment in time. But so, it's not just me on on the committee. So However, you, you, you I, may, I can. You may, you may have to downsize. Yes, and I can guarantee people that events will take place, um, and they will be um, family friendly and fun, and we are going to give everything that we have in the next few weeks 
Um, and it's only a few short weeks of St. Patrick's Day to ensure that Dundalk has something for St. Patrick's Day because the thought of not having something in the town for St. Patrick's Day just... Um, it's appalling. I, I just couldn't countenance it at all. So just give us an idea, Anne, because as, as you've pointed out there, Dundalk Chamber of Commerce just don't have the resources to organise the parade this year. But who who is involved now and, and, and who put their hands up at that meeting last week to say, let's do this? Um, myself and um, um, Councillor Maeve Yor and Councillor Conor Keelan and um, um, a couple of other people from the voluntary sector in Dundalk and, in fairness, the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce, Pat McCormick, their president, um, said he will um, be on the committee as well. So there's a few there's a few people there, and um, they we're going to be the ones that are going to meet tomorrow and drive this thing forward to ensure that look families have to have something to do in Dundalk. I've been at the parade gal for the last eleven years. My eldest son is eleven and. Um, I've always enjoyed it and last year myself and my colleague Councillor Rory O'Mark who joined the St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee and were just astounded by the amount of work that goes into organising um, the parade and um, it was something that, that we really um, got behind last year and really enjoyed getting involved in so we're, we're willing to do it again at, at least to try and get something um, up and running. For, and look, the Lyle County Council is, is supportive in, in, in the way that they said that they will they will help us with anything that's needed around road closures or licenses or anything like that. They you know they will um, assist us in that regard. So hopefully, if we can come together and get something organised that that people will in Dundalk will understand that we just didn't have the time possibly to do a parade on the scale that um, they're used to, but there will be something. Um, fun and family friendly. And on Garda Sheikhan also made it clear. Oh yes, of course, the guards were there as well. Yes, Sergeant Brendan King was there. Very helpful. Can I ask you about the attendance of that meeting? Because there was some criticism raised on the night that the local publicans and restaurant owners weren't particularly representative and uh, I think was there a collection or an attempt made to take a collection along the town to try and fund some of this? Have you been disappointed by the response of local business? I have Particularly in that sector. Yeah, I have been disappointed by the response of local businesses to it. I think it was always something that was left to other people um, to organise and then businesses, particularly restaurants and pubs, would have benefited from the fact that there were so many people in the town centre for an event that was specifically organised for St. Patrick's Day. So not for them not to see the, the benefit of um, even a financial contribution or um, putting a couple of them onto the committee, um, it is disappointing, yes, Cahill. And I mean, let's face it, St. Patrick's Day in many ways has become a national drinking holiday, so the pubs in particular should be uh, and, 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 looking yeah, to back this. Is, yeah. And that is something that, that I spoke about as well at the meeting. Um, uh, and it's funny you should raise it. I, I did say that, um, you know, the alternative to, have, to having, and if, if you have nothing in the town centre that's family friendly and, and um, organised around young people and, and families, then the other alternative is, is the pub. Um, for for people and um, that's not something that that you know I I would like to to see but I think that you know if you have something in 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 the town centre you are bringing the people in and especially people with younger families they're able to come in and enjoy themselves and and um, stay and maybe get you know go to a restaurant or whatever the pub is not always the the option. Mm. But there is a benefit for all businesses in the town. Of course, if, there's a benefit if they get for all benefits. If, if they can get behind it. And look, at this stage, late in the game as it is, we'll take any assistance that we can get. You mentioned Brexit earlier on, and, and can I just ask you, I mean, at, at the moment on the ground in Dundalk, and what, 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 is the, what is the feeling? 
I have to say, Cahal, that it's. I think panic is starting to set in, um, especially from um, the government point of view. Um, myself and my colleague, Councillor Rory O'Marke, attended the revenue briefing on customs. That was yesterday, um, wasn't it? Yeah, yesterday at the, at the Karen Peg Hotel, and there was about 250 business people there. And they are so worried, talking to them um, yesterday, they're, they're so worried, they're so confused, they, they, they're... They never thought that they were going to be in this situation. Because you, you can nearly um, see a hard border from Dundalk if it comes back, can't you? Uh, yeah, and and that's the you know that's the appalling vista that is now um, coming into view. It's it's absolutely um, horrendous, and it, but it is something that that I have said for the last number of months that if things you know if if the withdrawal agreement is rejected by the British government, there is well, what is the plan B and. You know, I think that people in in Dundalk were on the front line of it, right on the front line of it, and the the thought of going backwards whenever we should be going forwards is, is is especially for business. And at the briefing yesterday, Cahill, the revenue were really good and they're they're really um, knowledgeable and expert, obviously in their field. But they just to move stuff from one place to another, from one um, part of the island to another, or from from um, here over to, to Britain is the paperwork alone, just the paperwork alone is, it would, would I, I, I think it would just um, for small and, and medium businesses, um, export businesses it would just be it, it's almost too much for them, it's well, just Anne, too much of them. Thank you for your time this morning as you say, March the 17th and March the 29th they're both only around the corner in real terms that's Anne Campbell, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council and a member of the new Dundalk St Patrick's Day Parade Committee My thanks to Marie, to Maggie and to Chris Paul McKenna is next, we'll be back with you just after 9 tomorrow morning The Michael Reed Show Podcast, tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie 